Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 111. Joe, Joe, wherefore art thou not Joe? This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute at goldengatefiberinstitute.com. Check out the website for more information on the Winter 2009 workshops. If you heard jingle bells there for a second, that was my dog trying desperately to go outside at nine o'clock at night, which um, I just don't think I want to have her doing, what with it being the desert and nighttime and dark, and that's when a lot of the critters come out, so uh, she can ring the bell all she wants. She ain't going. For those of you who are new listeners, I wanted to let you know that there is a library of past Craftlit episodes running down the right-hand side of the Blogspot website. That would be craftlit.blogspot.com. I've been getting some emails from people saying that on the Libsyn site, the there are links that aren't working, there are weird files that are doing funky things. Uh, often, that's true. Things go glitchy with iTunes, the feed goes down... The Libsyn site is buggier than the Blogspot site. And the player on the Blogspot site is now, in fact, playing the most recent episode. And I think there is a way on there to get that player to play previous episodes as well, although I haven't been fiddling with it a whole lot. So I need to check into that again for you. But be that as it may, the library running down the left side or the right side of the Blogspot screen is, in fact, up to date with uh, last episode, 110. So you've got all those back episodes that you can download and listen to to your heart's content. They also have listed on them the chapters and the book titles um, that are covered in those episodes. So I just wanted to get that out for you. Today's chapters that we are going to listen to deal with Joe and Joe changing. So the Joe, Joe, wherefore art thou not Joe? Uh, For those of you who know that wherefore really means why, why are you not Joe? Why aren't you Joe anymore? It kind of goes thematically with me right now. I, as you well know, have been knitting for quite a while. And before that, I was crocheting for quite a while. And before that, I was cross-stitching for quite a while. And before that, I was spinning for quite a while. And before that, I was knitting and crocheting for quite a while. So you kind of see there's this rotation thing that goes on. I am rotating again. The bread is rising. <laughs> that's not that's not the big rotation. I'm, I'm really starting to draw again quite a bit. And I'm taking a class called pocket sketching. That's watercolor sketching. But fortuitously for the universe, but probably not for my wallet, which is non-existent at this point, Jamie at Interweave Press sent me uh, new books that are coming out from Interweave, 
And the first one I thought was interesting, but probably not something I was going to do a whole lot with. Those of you who've been with me since the beginning, or who have gone back and listened to everything, bless your heart, you know that I experimented briefly a couple of years ago with the crazy quilt, which turned out spectacularly, very happy about it, but I I found that embroidery, not my thing, which I already knew, so I don't really know why. Anyway, there is a new book for those of you who do like quilting and embroidery and those kinds of techniques. There is a new book called The Quilting Arts Book, Techniques and Inspiration for Creating One-of-A-Kind Quilts. This book is by Patricia Bolton, and uh, this one I just kind of thumbed through. I found her design choices to be really, really striking. And if I had any kind of talent in this arena, I would probably be all over this book. She gives a lot of background information about color choices and line and how to scale things and you know, create proportionately correct things. Can you hear the dogs fighting in the background? It's so annoying. And then she gets into applique and, and actual you know, how do you do quilts? These are not log cabin quilts or the the flying bird quilts. These are embellished quilts. If you've ever seen some of the really fabulous African-American quilts that are the storytelling quilts, this is, uh, it's not the same. She's not going for storytelling in, in that kind of specificity. But I, I think it would be appropriate to say that each one of her quilts tells a story. Sometimes the story is just a mood or a tone or a memory, but wow, the the art in this book is really extraordinary. So if you are at all interested in surface design, just at all, take a look at the Quilting Arts book by Patricia Bolton. It's really impressive and And uh, if you get the book and do anything that, you know, that the book inspires you to do, please let me know, because I would be fascinated to see what you, my listeners, come up with, because it's beautiful. The second book that Jamie sent me got me jazzed even more. This is called Mixed Media Self-Portraits, Inspiration and Techniques by Kate, I'm not even going to pretend I'm going to pronounce her name right, Prado or Prado, P-R-A-T-O. She is, uh, is she the one from Quilting Arts Magazine and Cloth Paper Scissors? Yes. She's uh, the features editor for Quilting Arts and Cloth Paper Scissors. She has outdone herself. She, and it looks like a group of her, if not friends, then at least people she knows. This, well, I'll tell you flat out, the part that I that just really swayed me, and I thought, oh yeah, no, this is a book that I'm going to hang on to and play with. Uh, One of her artists, and I'm going to see if I can find her name again, I think it is Cheryl. Yes, Cheryl Pratter or Prater, I'm not sure. Maybe she's listening. Maybe she can tell me. She comes up in uh, our next book as well. She did this hilarious series of self-portraits where she took a Frida Kahlo self-portrait a Van Gogh self-portrait, and, oh, darn it, 
I used to know two other famous self-portraits that are, well, when you see them, you'll go, oh yeah, I remember them. And without their faces in there, I can't remember who they are. But I'll tell you this, she has cut out her face from a series of pictures, and she has inserted her face over and around and under the original face. So, uh, you know, she is Van Gogh in the funny hat with the thing wrapped around under his chin. She's in a turban. She's painting a painting. Or she's Frida Kahlo with the monobrow. <laughs> and it's just awesome. The ideas in here are, I think, inspirational. But I also really like the layout of the book. The book makes you want to go grab some markers and go, you know, dig through your junk drawer and find stuff that you can just paste onto board and play with. And the the other nice thing about it is there's clearly no emphasis on realism. You don't have to be able to paint like Rembrandt. In fact, it's probably better if you don't. Some of this stuff is just so inventive and wonderful. So if you are so inclined to do something different than you normally do, and and we all should every week try to do at least one different thing, maybe shake it up a little bit, yeah? I would take a look at this book, Mixed Media Self-Portraits, Inspiration and Techniques by Kate Kulakos Prado, maybe? I know somebody out there knows how to pronounce her name. So that was the second book. Then, last night, I found another box waiting for me. I opened it up, and this one, this one is the one that's going to do damage. It's called Mixed Mania, Recipes for Delicious Mixed Media Creations by Debbie Crane and Cheryl Prater, or Prater. I hope it's Prater. For those of you who have ever looked at cloth, paper, scissors, you have seen covers done, and probably articles as well, done by both of these women. Uh, Debbie Crane is an elementary school art teacher from the Midwest, and Cheryl is actually a high-powered executive type person from the Midwest. They have almost nothing in common. But the thing that I found interesting is this book is the mixed media version of Mason Dixon Knitting, which I just heard that there's a new Mason Dixon book, so I'm very excited about that. But until I get there, the mixed mania book is all about just going nuts and losing yourself and just creating. Debbie decided that she was going to create a piece of art every day, all year long. And I think this she's on her sixth year of doing this. So she, you know, gave herself a theme because that would help kind of focus everything. And then she's just gone. She just does stuff. They have a nice uh, set up at the beginning where they talk about your well-stocked pantry because they treat this like a recipe book. They have a substitution chart in case you run out of things or don't have things on hand. They talk about the principles of design briefly. Then they have what they call appetizers, which are little, little projects to do. Nothing, nothing major, nothing heavy. And then they have main courses. And then they have little kind of desserty things at the end, little sweet things to do that are fun. Some of these uh, creations that they come up with are extremely three-dimensional and you know you could be pasting on nuts and bolts and bird cages and all sorts of crazy stuff 
Some of it has to do more with drawing and painting. Some of it is collage. There's a little bit of everything in here. And if you have children, and I know many of you do, this book is kind of a non-kitty version of a kid's craft book. I had the Richard Scarry's Rainy Day book when I was a kid. I know some of you did too. And I remember, you know, being able to open that book and come up with at least three or four things that I could riff on out of the book. And I never really did what he said in the book. I just kind of took it as a jumping off point and then went and did other stuff. My mom also was always bringing home art things to do because she was an elementary school teacher. And so she had a well-stocked pantry of art supplies and pens and glue and twine and cardboard and tinfoil and things like that. This has that feel to it. You know, ooh, let's just go play. So I'm, when I stop podcasting tonight, I'm going to go play and see what I can come up with. I'm very excited about this. So those are three surprise book reviews for you. Mixed Media, Debbie, I'm sorry, Mixed Mania, Debbie Crane and Cheryl Prater. Excellent, excellent, inspirational book. Some lovely stuff in here. So once again, we have Jamie at Interweave to thank for these books. And I'm going to talk to her and find out if maybe I can raffle these off for an incentive during uh, the month of October, because that would be kind of nice to do. So a couple of things. Uh, first off, I wanted to send out a public shout out to one of our listeners who has been with us for, for quite a long time, who uh, did the 12-step the program for knitters. Um, she had a tragedy last week. Her husband passed away unexpectedly, uh, complications for surgery. And Shannon and I have been emailing and texting and on the phone with each other this week. And um, I just wanted to say publicly, Shannon, that you continue to be on my mind. And I, I hope you, I hope you are well, you and your daughter. And I hope you continue to be well. I also wanted to say that there have been tragedies in a number of our listeners' lives of late. Um, Shannon is not the only one. Being that this book does have some drama in it, I am going to give you, it won't be a spoiler alert, but it'll be a Kleenex alert <laughs> or a trade, non-trademark tissue alert. Uh, there are going to be some chapters, not today's, but there are going to be some chapters coming up that will definitely be like the end of Tale of Two Cities, the, the thing that you don't want to listen to in the car in heavy traffic. So I will warn you when we are um, in one of those chapters or when we're about to listen to one of those chapters, because really it's being a very dramatic end of the year and nobody really needs any more drama in their life. I, I think we should keep all the drama on the page for a little while if we can, maybe. So just to let you know that that's what we're going to do. Well, last week, and f for me, it was a couple of days ago. For you, it's probably a little bit longer. But last week we had the Joe Beth Laurie chapter where Joe mistakenly thinks that Beth is in love with Lori. Lori makes it clear that he is still um, yearning for Joe. Louisa May Alcott has set up this very odd 
relationship because it looks like Joe and Lori would be perfect for each other. And then she disses them. You know, who knows? Well, today's chapters start a new version for Joe. I really find these next two chapters to be extraordinary because so many of us self-identify with Joe. I get emails all the time from listeners saying, well, you know, Joe was always the one that I thought I was most like. There have been some Megs, there have been some Amys, and there have been some Beths in our listeners, which actually makes me feel really good because it would be kind of scary if we were all Joe. And not only that, but it would probably be a really unpleasant, cranky world if we were all Joe. (laughs) But a lot of us self-identify as a Joe type. And we've pretty clearly defined what that means for us. Kind of a tomboy, many of us are writers or or people who would like to be writers if we had the opportunity. Uh, Many of us are independent and strong-willed and stubborn and, you know, all the good stuff. Well, all that's true, but you're listening to a show called Craft Lit, and some of you are knitters, and some of you are crocheters, and some of you are potters, and some of you are mixed media artists, and some of you are painters, and, you know, we have a little bit of everything. Some of you are mathematicians, and that's your art, which I envy you for. We've talked about that before. So I know on some level all of us have embraced different aspects of domesticity. And I'm including all artistic pursuits as something that's under the larger canopy of of domestic pursuits, because I think that one of the reasons that we create art in whatever form we create it in is to make our lives and often not always, but often our homes more amenable to us. They make it warmer and more user-friendly and pleasant. And while I, I certainly don't fancy myself a domestic goddess because God knows my husband is a better housekeeper than I am, there is an aspect of nesting in my life that is extremely important to me. And a lot of the things that I make and create wind up in the house and in other people's houses, and they are there to make them feel better. Well, we've seen Jo in the past not being particularly domestic. She was kind of self-involved. She was upstairs writing. She was on her own. She was making a kerfluffle here and there. That's kind of Jo. Watch what happens in these next two chapters, because I'm going to play two chapters back to back for you. There's no reason to break in the middle. I am fascinated by what Alcott does with Joe in these two chapters. I'm going to come back at the end and we're going to talk about why she does it, or at least my vision of why she does it. And then I'm going to invite you to send in your ideas, which you often do, whether I invite you to or, or not. And I love that. It's always good. Always good to hear from you guys. So I'm getting my life back together. Joe's getting her life together. I'm going to hand you over to Joe and chapters 33 and 34 of 
Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 33 Joe's Journal. New York, November. Dear Marmy and Beth, I'm going to write you a regular volume, for I've heaps to tell, though I'm not a fine young lady traveling on the continent. When I lost sight of father's dear old face, I felt a trifle blue, and might have shed a briny drop or two if an Irish lady with four small children, all crying more or less, hadn't diverted my mind, for I amused myself by dropping gingerbread nuts over the seat every time they opened their mouths to roar. Soon the sun came out, and taking it as a good omen, I cleared up likewise, and enjoyed my journey with all my heart. Mrs. Kirk welcomed me so kindly I felt at home at once, even in that big house full of strangers. She gave me a funny little sky parlor, all she had, but there's a stove in it and a nice table and a sunny window, so I can sit here and write whenever I like. A fine view in a church tower opposite atoned for the many stairs, and I took a fancy to my den on the spot. The nursery where I am to teach and sew is a pleasant room next Mrs. Kirk's private parlor, and the two little girls are pretty children, rather spoiled, I fancy, but they took to me after telling them the seven bad pigs, and I've no doubt I shall make a model governess. I am to have my meals with the children, if I prefer it to the great table, and for the present I do, for I am bashful, though no one will believe it. Now, my dear, make yourself at home, said Mrs. K in her motherly way. I'm on the drive from morning to night, as you may suppose with such a family, but a great anxiety will be off my mind if I know the children are safe with you. My rooms are always open to you, and your own shall be as comfortable as I can make it. There are some pleasant people in the house if you feel sociable, and your evenings are always free. Come to me if anything goes wrong, and be as happy as you can. There is the tea bell. I must run and change my cap. And off she bustled, leaving me to settle myself in my new nest. As I went downstairs soon after, I saw something I liked. The flights are very long in this tall house, and as I stood at the head of the third one for a little servant girl to lumber up, I saw a gentleman come along behind her, take the heavy hod of coal out of her hand, carry it all the way up, put it down at a door nearby, and walk away, saying, with a kind nod and a foreign accent, It goes better so. The little back is too young for half such heaviness. Wasn't that good of him? I like such things. For as father says, trifles show character. When I mentioned it to Mrs. K that evening, she laughed and said, That must have been Professor Bayer. He's always doing things of that sort. Mrs. K told me he was from Berlin, very learned and good, but poor as a church mouse and gives lessons to support himself and two little orphan nephews, whom he is educating here, according to the wishes of his sister, who married an American. Not a very romantic story, but it interested me, and I was glad to hear that Mrs. K lends him her parlor for some of his scholars. There is a glass door between it and the nursery, and I mean to peep at him, and then I'll tell you how he looks. He's almost forty, so it's no harm, Marmy. After tea and a go-to-bed romp with the little girls, I attacked the big work-basket, and had a quiet evening chatting with my new friend. I shall keep a journal letter and send it once a week, so good night and more tomorrow. Tuesday Eve. Had a lively time in my seminary this morning, for the children acted like Sancho, and at one time I really thought I should shake them all round. Some good angel inspired me to try gymnastics, and I kept it up till they were glad to sit down and keep still. After luncheon, the girl took them out for a walk, and I went to my needlework like little Mabel with a willing mind. I was thanking my stars that I'd learned to make nice buttonholes when the parlor door opened and shut, and someone began to hum, Kennst du das Land, like a big bumblebee. It was dreadfully improper, I know, 
but I couldn't resist the temptation, and lifting one end of the curtain before the glass door, I peeped in. Professor Bear was there, and while he arranged his books I took a good look at him. A regular German, rather stout, with brown hair tumbled all over his head, a bushy beard, good nose, the kindest eyes I ever saw, and a splendid big voice that does one's ears good, after our sharp or slipshod American gabble. His clothes were rusty, his hands were large, and he hadn't a very handsome feature in his face, except his beautiful teeth, yet I liked him, for he had a fine head, his linen was very nice, and he looked like a gentleman, though two buttons were off his coat and there was a patch on one shoe. He looked sober in spite of his humming, till he went to the window to turn the hyacinth bulbs toward the sun and stroke the cat, who received him like an old friend. Then he smiled, and when a tap came at the door, called out in a loud, brisk tone, Herein! I was just going to run when I caught sight of a morsel of a child carrying a big book and stopped to see what was going on. Me wants me bear, said the mite, slamming down her book and running to meet him. Thou shalt have thy bear. Come then and take a good hug from him, my Tina, said the professor, catching her up with a laugh and holding her so high above his head that she had to stoop her little face to kiss him. Now me must study my lesson, went on the funny little thing. So he put her up at the table, opened the great dictionary she had brought, and gave her a paper and pencil, and she scribbled away, turning a leaf now and then, and passing her little fat finger down the page as if finding a word, so soberly that I nearly betrayed myself by a laugh, while Mr. Bear stood stroking her pretty hair with a fatherly look that made me think she must be his own, although she looked more French than German. Another knock and the appearance of two young ladies sent me back to my work, and there I virtuously remained through all the noise and gabbling that went on next door. One of the girls kept laughing affectedly and saying, Now, Professor, in a coquettish tone, and the other pronounced her German with an accent that must have made it hard for him to keep sober. Both seemed to try his patience sorely, for more than once I heard him say emphatically, No, no, it is not so. You have not attend to what I say. And once there was a loud rap as if he struck the table with his book, followed by the despairing exclamation, Rut! It all goes bad this day. Poor man, I pitied him and when the girls were gone, took just one more peep to see if he survived it. He seemed to have thrown himself back in his chair, tired out, and sat there with his eyes shut till the clock struck two, when he jumped up, put his books in his pocket as if ready for another lesson, and taking little Tina, who had fallen asleep on the sofa in his arms, he carried her quietly away. I fancy he has a hard life of it. Mrs. Kirk asked me if I wouldn't go down to the five o'clock dinner, and feeling a little bit homesick, I thought I would, just to see what sort of people are under the same roof with me. So I made myself respectable and tried to slip in behind Mrs. Kirk, but as she is short and I am tall, my efforts at concealment were rather a failure. She gave me a seat by her, and after my face cooled off, I plucked up courage and looked about me. The long table was full, and everyone intent on getting their dinner, the gentlemen especially, who seemed to be eating on time, for they bolted in every sense of the word, vanishing as soon as they were done. There was the usual assortment of young men absorbed in themselves, young couples absorbed in each other, married ladies in their babies, and old gentlemen in politics. I don't think I shall care to have much to do with any of them, except one sweet-faced maiden lady who looks as if she had something in her. Cast away at the very bottom of the table was the professor, shouting answers to the questions of a very inquisitive deaf old gentleman on one side, and talking philosophy with a Frenchman on the other. If Amy had been here, she'd have turned her back on him forever, because, sad to relate, he had a great appetite, 
and shoveled in his dinner in a manner which would have horrified her ladyship. I didn't mind, for I like to see folks eat with a relish, as Hannah says, and the poor man must have needed a deal of food after teaching idiots all day. As I went upstairs after dinner, two of the young men were settling their hats before the hall mirror, and I heard one say, low to the other, who's the new party? Governess or something of that sort. What the deuce is she at our table for? Friend of the old ladies. Handsome head, but no style. Not a bit of it. Give us a light and come on. I felt angry at first, and then I didn't care, for a governess is as good as a clerk, and I've got sense if I haven't style, which is more than some people have, judging from the remarks of the elegant beings who clattered away, smoking like bad chimneys. I hate ordinary people. Thursday. Yesterday was a quiet day spent in teaching, sewing, and writing in my little room, which is very cozy with a light and fire. I picked up a few bits of news and was introduced to the professor. It seems that Tina is the child of the French woman who does the fine ironing in the laundry here. The little thing has lost her heart to Mr. Bear and follows him about the house like a dog whenever he is at home, which delights him, as he is very fond of children, though a bachelor door. Kitty and Minnie Kirk likewise regard him with affection and tell all sorts of stories about the plays he invents, the presents he brings, and the splendid tales he tells. The younger men quiz him, it seems, call him Old Fritz, Lager Beer, Ursa Major, and make all manner of jokes on his name. But he enjoys it like a boy, Mrs. Kirk says, and takes it so good-naturedly that they all like him in spite of his foreign ways. The maiden lady is a Miss Norton, rich, cultivated, and kind. She spoke to me at dinner today, for I went to table again. It's such fun to watch people, and asking me to come and see her at her room. She has fine books and pictures, knows interesting persons, and seems friendly, so I shall make myself agreeable, for I do want to get into good society, only it isn't the same sort that Amy likes. I was in our parlor last evening when Mr. Bear came in with some newspapers for Mrs. Kirk. She wasn't there, but Minnie, who was a little old woman, introduced me very prettily. This is Mama's friend, Miss March. Yes, and she's jolly, and we like her lots, added Kitty, who was an enfant terrible. We both bowed, and then we laughed, for the prim introduction and the blunt addition were rather a comical contrast. Ah, yes, I hear these naughty ones go to vex you, Miss March. If so again, call out to me and I come, he said, with a threatening frown that delighted the little wretches. I promised I would, and he departed, but it seems as if I was doomed to see a good deal of him, for today as I passed his door on my way out, by accident I knocked against it with my umbrella. It flew open, and there he stood in his dressing gown, with a big blue sock on one hand and a darning needle in the other. He didn't seem at all ashamed of it, for when I explained and hurried on, he waved his hand, sock and all, saying in his loud, cheerful way, You have a fine day to make your walk. Bon voyage, mademoiselle. I laughed all the way downstairs, but it was a little pathetic, also to think of the poor man having to mend his own clothes. The German gentleman embroider, I know, but darning hose is another thing, and not so pretty. Saturday. Nothing has happened to write about except a call on Miss Norton, who has a room full of pretty things, and who was very charming, for she showed me all her treasures and asked me if I would sometimes go with her to lectures and concerts as her escort, if I enjoyed them. She put it as a favor, but I'm sure Mrs. Kirk has told her about us, and she does it out of kindness to me. I'm as proud as Lucifer, but such favors from such people don't burden me, and I accepted gratefully. When I got back to the nursery, there was such an uproar in the parlor that I looked in, 
and there was Mr. Bear down on his hands and knees with Tina on his back, Kitty leading him with a jump rope and Minnie feeding two small boys with seed cakes as they roared and ramped in cages built of chairs. We are playing nagerie, explained Kitty. This is mine elephant, added Tina, holding on by the professor's hair. Mama always allows us to do what we like on Saturday afternoon when Franz and Emil come, doesn't she, Mr. Bear? said Minnie. The effalant sat up, looking as much in earnest as any of them, and said soberly to me, I give you my fort, it is so. If we make too large a noise, you shall say hush to us, and we go more softly. I promised to do so, but left the door open and enjoyed the fun as much as they did, for a more glorious frolic I never witnessed. They played tag and soldiers, danced and sang, and when it began to grow dark they all piled onto the sofa about the professor, while he told charming fairy stories of the storks on the chimney-tops and the little cobblets who ride the snowflakes as they fall. I wish Americans were as simple and natural as Germans, don't you? I'm so fond of writing, I should go spinning on forever if motives of economy didn't stop me, for though I've used thin paper and written fine, I tremble to think of the stamps this long letter will need. Pray forward Amy's as soon as you can spare them. My small news will sound very flat after her splendors, but you will like them, I know. Is Teddy studying so hard that he can't find time to write to his friends? Take good care of him for me, Beth, and tell me all about the babies, and give heaps of love to everyone. From your faithful, Joe. P.S. On reading over my letter, it strikes me as rather berry, but I am always interested in odd people, and I really had nothing else to write about. Bless you. December. My precious Betsy, as this is to be a scribble-scrabble letter, I direct it to you, for it may amuse you, and give you some idea of my goings-on, for, though quiet, they are rather amusing, for which, oh, be joyful. After what Amy would call Herculaneum efforts in the way of mental and moral agriculture, my young ideas begin to shoot and my little twigs to bend as I could wish. They are not so interesting to me as Tina and the boys, but I do my duty by them and they are fond of me. Franz and Emil are jolly little lads, quite after my own heart, for the mixture of German and American spirit in them produces a constant state of effervescence. Saturday afternoons are riotous times, whether spent in the house or out, for on pleasant days they all go for a walk, like a seminary, with the professor and myself to keep order, and then such fun! We are all very good friends now, and I've begun to take lessons. I really couldn't help it, and it all came about in such a droll way that I must tell you. To begin at the beginning, Mrs. Kirk called me one day as I passed Mr. Bear's room, where she was rummaging. Did you ever see such a den, my dear? Just come and help me put these books to rights for I have turned everything upside down, trying to discover what he has done with the six new handkerchiefs I gave him not long ago. I went in, and while we worked I looked about me, for it was a den, to be sure. Books and papers everywhere, a broken meerschaum, an old flute over the mantelpiece as if done with, a ragged bird without any tail chirped on one window seat, and a box of white mice adorned the other. Half-finished boats and bits of string lay among the manuscripts. Dirty little boots stood drying before the fire, and traces of the dearly beloved boys, for whom he makes a slave of himself, were to be seen all over the room. After a grand rummage, three of the missing articles were found, one over the birdcage, one covered with ink, and a third burned brown, having been used as a holder. Such a man, laughed good-natured Mrs. K, as she put the relics in the rag bag. I suppose the others are torn up to rig ships, bandage-cut fingers, or make kite-tails. It's dreadful, but I can't scold him. 
He's so absent-minded and good-natured, he lets those boys ride over him roughshod. I agree to do his washing and mending, but he forgets to give out his things, and I forget to look them over, so he comes to a sad pass sometimes. Let me mend them, then, said I. I don't mind it, and he needn't know. I'd like to. He's so kind to me about bringing my letters and lending books. So I have got his things in order, and knit heels into two pairs of the socks, for they were boggled out of shape with his queer darns. Nothing was said, and I hoped he wouldn't find it out, but one day last week he caught me at it. Hearing the lessons he gives to others has interested and amused me so much that I took a fancy to learn, for Tina runs in and out, leaving the door open, and I can hear. I had been sitting near this door, finishing off the last sock, and trying to understand what he said to a new scholar, who was as stupid as I am. The girl had gone, and I thought he had also, it was so still, and I was busily gabbling over a verb, and rocking to and fro in a most absurd manner, when a little crow made me look up, and there was Mr. Bear, looking and laughing quietly, while he made signs to Tina not to betray him. So, he said as I stopped and stared like a goose, you peep at me, I peep at you, and this is not bad, but see, I am not pleasanting when I say, have you a wish for German? Yes, but you are too busy. I am too stupid to learn, I blundered out, as red as a peony. Prut, we will make the time, and we fail not to find the sense. At Efting I shall give a little lesson with much gladness, for look you, Miss March, I have this debt to pay. And he pointed to my work. Yes, they say to one another, these so kind ladies, he is a stupid old fellow, he will not see what we do. He will not observe that his sock heels go not in holes any more. He will think his buttons grow out new when they fall, and believe that strings make themselves. Ah, but I have an eye, and I see much. I have a heart, and I feel thanks for this. Come, a little lesson then and now, or no more good fairy works for me and mine. Of course, I could say nothing after that, and it is really a splendid opportunity. I made the bargain, and we began. I took four lessons, and then I stuck fast in a grammatical bog. The professor was very patient with me, but it must have been torment to him, and now and then he'd look at me with such an expression of mild despair that it was a toss-up with me whether to laugh or cry. I tried both ways, and when it came to a sniff or utter mortification and woe, he just threw the grammar on the floor and marched out of the room. I felt myself disgraced and deserted forever, but didn't blame him a particle, and was scrambling my papers together, meaning to rush upstairs and shake myself hard, when in he came, as brisk and beaming as if I'd covered myself in glory. Now we shall try a new way. You and I will read these pleasant little marchin together, and dig no more into that dry book that goes in the corner for making us trouble. He spoke so kindly, and opened Hans Anderson's fairy tale so invitingly before me, that I was more ashamed than ever, and went at my lesson in a neck-or-nothing style that seemed to amuse him immensely. I forgot my bashfulness, and pegged away, no other word will express it, with all my might, tumbling over long words, pronouncing according to inspiration of the minute, and doing my very best. When I finished reading my first page and stopped for breath, he clapped his hands and cried out in his hearty way, Das ist gut! Now we go well! My turn! I do him in German, give me your ear! And away he went, rumbling out the words with his strong voice, and a relish which was good to see, as well as hear. Fortunately the story was The Constant Tin Soldier, which is droll, you know. So I could laugh, and I did, though I didn't understand half he read, for I couldn't help it, he was so earnest, I so excited, 
and the whole thing so comical. After that we got on better, and now I read my lessons pretty well, for this way of studying suits me, and I can see that the grammar gets tucked into the tales and poetry as one gives pills in jelly. I like it very much, and he doesn't seem to tire of it yet, which is very good of him, isn't it? I mean to give him something on Christmas, for I dare not offer money. Tell me something nice, Marmy. I'm glad Laurie seems so happy and busy that he has given up smoking and lets his hair grow. You see Beth manages him better than I did. I'm not jealous, dear. Do your best. Only don't make a saint of him. I'm afraid I couldn't like him without a spice of human naughtiness. Read him bits of my letters. I haven't time to write much, and that will do just as well. Thank heaven Beth continues so comfortable. January. A happy new year to you all, my dearest family, which of course includes Mr. L and a young man by the name of Teddy. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your Christmas bundle, for I didn't get it till night and had given up hoping. Your letter came in the morning, but you said nothing about a parcel, meaning it for a surprise, so I was disappointed, for I'd had a kind of feeling that you wouldn't forget me. I felt a little low in my mind as I sat up in my room after tea, and when the big, muddy, battered-looking bundle was brought to me, I just hugged it and pranced. It was so homey and refreshing that I sat down on the floor and read and looked and ate and laughed and cried in my usual absurd way. The things were just what I wanted, and all the better for being made instead of bought. Beth's new ink bib was capital, and Hannah's box of hard gingerbread will be a treasure. I'll be sure and wear the nice flannels you sent, Marmy, and read carefully the books father has marked. Thank you all, heaps and heaps. Speaking of the books reminds me that I am getting rich in that line, for on New Year's Day Mr. Bear gave me a fine Shakespeare. It is one he values much, and I've often admired it, set up in the place of honor with his German Bible, Plato, Homer, and Milton, so you may imagine how I felt when he brought it down without its cover and showed me my own name in it, from my friend Friedrich Bear. You'll say often you wish a library. Here I give you one. For between these lids, he meant covers, is many books in one. Read him well, and he will help you much, for the study of character in this book will help you to read it in the world, and paint it with your pen. I thanked him as well as I could, and talked now about my library, as if I had a hundred books. I never knew how much there was in Shakespeare before, but then I never had a bear to explain it to me. Now don't laugh at his horrid name. It isn't pronounced either bear or beer, as people will say it, but something between the two, as only Germans can give it. I'm glad you both like what I tell you about him, and hope you will know him some day. Mother would admire his warm heart, father his wise head. I admire both, and feel rich in my new friend Friedrich Bär. Not having much money or knowing what he'd like, I got several little things, and put them about the room where he would find them unexpectedly. They were useful, pretty, or funny. A new standish on his table, a little vase for his flower, he always has one or a bit of green in a glass to keep him fresh, he says, and a holder for his blower, so that he needn't burn up what Amy calls mouchoirs. I made it like those Beth invented, a big butterfly with a fat body and black and yellow wings, worsted feelers, and bead eyes. It took his fancy immensely, and he put it on his mantelpiece as an article of virtue, so it was rather a failure after all. Poor as he is, he didn't forget a servant or a child in the house, and not a soul here from the French laundry ruin to Miss Norton forgot him. I was so glad of that. They got up a masquerade and had a gay time New Year's Eve. I didn't mean to go down, having no dress, 
but at the last minute Mrs. Kirk remembered some old brocades, and Miss Norton lent me some lace and feathers. So I dressed up as Mrs. Malaprop and sailed in with a mask on. No one knew me, for I disguised my voice, and no one dreamed of the silent haughty Miss March, for they think I am very stiff and cool, most of them, and so I am to whippersnappers, could dance and dress and burst out into a nice derangement of epitaphs like an allegory on the banks of the Nile. I enjoyed it very much, and when we unmasked, it was fun to see them stare at me. I heard one of the young men tell another that he knew I'd been an actress. In fact, he thought he remembered seeing me at one of the minor theaters. Meg will relish that joke. Mr. Bear was Nick Bottom, and Tina was Tatiana, a perfect little fairy in his arms. To see them dance was quite a landscape, to use a teddyism. I had a very happy new year, after all, and when I thought it over in my room, I felt as if I was getting on a little in spite of my many failures, for I am cheerful all the time now, work with a will, and take more interest in other people than I used to, which is satisfactory. Bless you all. Ever your loving, Joe. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 A Friend Though very happy in the social atmosphere about her, and very busy with the daily work that earned her bread and made it sweeter for the effort, Joe still found time for literary labors. The purpose which now took possession of her was a natural one to a poor and ambitious girl, but the means she took to gain her end were not the best. She saw that money conferred power. Money and power, therefore, she resolved to have, not to be used for herself alone, but for those whom she loved more than life. The dream of filling home with comforts, giving Beth everything she wanted, from strawberries in winter to an organ in her bedroom, going abroad herself, and always having more than enough so that she might indulge in the luxury of charity, had been for years Joe's most cherished castle in the air. The prize story experience had seemed to open a way which might, after long traveling and much uphill work, lead to this delightful chateau in Espana. But the novel disaster quenched her courage for a time, for public opinion is a giant which has frightened stouter-hearted jacks on bigger beanstalks than hers. Like that immortal hero, she reposed a while after the first attempt, which resulted in a tumble and the least lovely of the giant's treasures, if I remember rightly. But the up-again-and-take-another spirit was as strong in Joe as in Jack, so she scrambled up on the shady side this time and got more booty, but nearly left behind her what was far more precious than the money bags. She took to writing sensation stories, for in those dark ages even all perfect America read rubbish, she told no one, but concocted a thrilling tale and boldly carried it herself to Mr. Dashwood, editor of the Weekly Volcano. She had never read Sartre Resartus, but she had a womanly instinct that clothes possess an influence more powerful over many than the worth of character or the magic of manners. So she dressed herself in her best, and trying to persuade herself that she was neither excited nor nervous, bravely climbed two pairs of dark and dirty stairs to find herself in a disorderly room, a cloud of cigar smoke, and the presence of three gentlemen, sitting with their heels rather higher than their hats. 
which articles of dress none of them took the trouble to remove on her appearance. Somewhat daunted by this reception, Joe hesitated on the threshold, murmuring in much embarrassment. Excuse me, I was looking for the weekly volcano office. I wish to see Mr. Dashwood. Down went the highest pair of heels. Up rose the smokiest gentleman, and carefully cherishing his cigar between his fingers, he advanced with a nod and a countenance expressive of nothing but sleep. Feeling that she must get through the matter somehow, Joe produced her manuscript and, blushing redder and redder with each sentence, blundered out fragments of the little speech carefully prepared for the occasion. A friend of mine desired me to offer a, a story just as an experiment. Would, like your opinion, be glad to write more if this suits. While she blushed and blundered, Mr. Dashwood had taken the manuscript and was turning over the leaves with a pair of rather dirty fingers and casting critical glances up and down the neat pages. Not a first attempt, I take it, observing that the pages were numbered, covered only on one side, and not tied up with a ribbon, sure sign of a novice. No, sir, she has had some experience and got a prize for a tale in the Blarney Stone Banner. Oh, did she? And Mr. Dashwood gave Joe a quick look, which seemed to take note of everything she had on, from the bow in her bonnet to the buttons on her boots. Well, you can leave it if you like. We've more of this sort of thing on hand than we know what to do with at present, but I'll run my eye over it and give you an answer next week. Now, Joe did not like to leave it, for Mr. Dashwood didn't suit her at all but under the circumstances there was nothing for her to do but bow and walk away, looking particularly tall and dignified, as she was apt to do when nettled or abashed. Just then she was both, for it was perfectly evident from the knowing glances exchanged among the gentlemen that her little fiction of my friend was considered a good joke, and a laugh produced by some inaudible remark of the editor as he closed the door completed her discomfiture. Half resolving never to return, she went home and worked off her irritation by stitching pinafores vigorously, and in an hour or two was cool enough to laugh over the scene and long for next week. When she went again, Mr. Dashwood was alone, whereat she rejoiced. Mr. Dashwood was much wider awake than before, which was agreeable. And Mr. Dashwood was not too deeply absorbed in a cigar to remember his manners, so the second interview was much more comfortable than the first. We'll take this. Editors never say I. If you don't object to a few alterations. It's too long, but omitting the passages I've marked will make it just the right length, he said in a businesslike tone. Joe hardly knew her own manuscript again, so crumpled and underscored were its pages and paragraphs, but feeling as a tender parent might on being asked to cut off her baby's legs in order that it might fit into a new cradle, she looked at the marked passages and was surprised to find that all the moral reflections, which she had carefully put in as ballast for much romance, had been stricken out. But, sir, I thought every story should have some sort of a moral— 
so I took care to have a few of my sinners repent. Mr. Dashwood's editorial gravity relaxed into a smile, for Joe had forgotten her friend and spoken as only an author could. People want to be amused, not preached at, you know. Morals don't sell nowadays, which is not quite a correct statement, by the way. You think it would do with these alterations, then? Yes, it's a new plot and pretty well worked up. Language good and so on, was Mr. Dashwood's affable reply. What do you, that is, what compensation, began Joe, not exactly knowing how to express herself. Oh, yes, well, we give from twenty-five to thirty for things of this sort. Pay when it comes out, returned Mr. Dashwood, as if that point had escaped him. Such trifles do escape the editorial mind, it is said. Very well, you can have it, said Joe, handing back the story with a satisfied air, for after the dollar-a-column work, even twenty-five seemed good pay. Shall I tell my friend you will take another if she has one better than this? asked Joe, unconscious of her little slip of the tongue and emboldened by her success. Well, we'll look at it. Can't promise to take it. Tell her to make it short and spicy and never mind the moral. What name would your friend like to put on it in a careless tone? None at all, if you please. She doesn't wish her name to appear and has no non de plume, said Joe, blushing in spite of herself. Just as she likes, of course. The tale will be out next week. Will you call for the money or shall I send it? asked Mr. Dashwood, who felt a natural desire to know who his new contributor might be. I'll call. Good morning, sir. As she departed, Mr. Dashwood put up his feet with the graceful remark, Poor and proud as usual, but she'll do. Following Mr. Dashwood's directions and making Mrs. Northbury her model, Joe rashly took a plunge into the frothy sea of sensational literature. But thanks to the life preserver thrown by a friend, she came up again not much the worse for her ducking. Like most young scribblers, she went abroad for her characters and scenery, and bandity, counts, gypsies, nuns, and duchesses appeared upon her stage and played their parts with as much accuracy and spirit as could be expected. Her readers were not particular about such trifles as grammar, punctuation, and probability, and Mr. Dashwood graciously permitted her to fill his columns at the lowest prices, not thinking it necessary to tell her that the real cause of his hospitality was the fact that one of his hacks, on being offered higher wages, had basely left him in the lurch. She soon became interested in her work, for her emaciated purse grew stout, and the little hoard she was making, to take Beth to the mountains next summer, grew slowly but surely as the weeks passed. One thing disturbed her satisfaction, and that was that she did not tell them at home. She had a feeling that father and mother would not approve, and preferred to have her own way first and beg pardon afterward. It was easy to keep her secret, for no name appeared with her stories. Mr. Dashwood had of course found it out very soon, but promised to be dumb, and for a wonder kept his word. She thought it would do her no harm, for she sincerely meant to write nothing of which she would be ashamed, 
and quieted all pricks of conscience by anticipations of the happy minute when she would show her earnings and laugh over her well-kept secret. But Mr. Dashwood rejected any but thrilling tales, and as thrills could not be produced except by harrowing up the souls of the readers, history and romance, land and sea, science and art, police records, and lunatic asylums had to be ransacked for the purpose. Joe soon found that her innocent experience had given her but few glimpses of the tragic world which underlies society. So regarding it in a business light, she set about supplying her deficiencies with characteristic energy. Eager to find material for stories and bent on making them original in plot, if not masterly in an execution, she searched newspapers for accidents, incidents, and crimes. She excited the suspicions of public librarians by asking for works on poisons. She studied faces in the street and characters, good, bad, and indifferent, all about her. She delved in the dust of ancient times for facts or fictions so old that they were as good as new, and introduced herself to folly, sin, and misery, as well as her limited opportunities allowed. She thought she was prospering finely, but unconsciously she was beginning to desecrate some of the womanliest attributes of a woman's character. She was living in bad society, and imaginary though it was, its influence affected her, for she was feeding heart and fancy on dangerous and unsubstantial food, and was fast brushing the innocent bloom from her nature by a premature acquaintance with the darker side of life, which comes soon enough to all of us. She was beginning to feel rather than see this, for much describing of other people's passions and feelings set her to studying and speculating about her own, a morbid amusement in which healthy young minds do not voluntarily indulge. Wrongdoing always brings its own punishment, and when Joe most needed hers, she got it. I don't know whether the study of Shakespeare helped her to read character or a natural instinct of a woman for what was honest, brave, and strong. But while endowing her imaginary heroes with every perfection under the sun, Joe was discovering a live hero who interested her in spite of many human imperfections. Mr. Bear, in one of their conversations, had advised her to study simple, true, and lovely characters wherever she found them as good training for a writer. Joe took him at his word, for she coolly turned round and studied him, a proceeding which would have much surprised him had he known it, for the worthy professor was very humble in his own conceit. Why everybody liked him was what puzzled Joe at first. He was neither rich nor great, young nor handsome, in no respect what is called fascinating, imposing, or brilliant and yet he was as attractive as a genial fire, and people seemed to gather about him as naturally as about a warm hearth. He was poor, yet always appeared to be giving something away. A stranger, yet everyone was his friend. No longer young, but as happy-hearted as a boy. Plain and peculiar, yet his face looked beautiful to many, and his oddities were freely forgiven for his sake. Joe often watched him, trying to discover the charm, and at last decided that it was benevolence which worked the miracle. 
If he had any sorrow, it sat with its head under its wing, and he turned only his sunny side to the world. There were lines upon his forehead, but time seemed to have touched him gently, remembering how kind he was to others. The pleasant curves about his mouth were the memorials of many friendly words and cheerful laughs. His eyes were never cold or hard, and his big hand had a warm, strong grasp that was more expressive than words. His very clothes seemed to partake of the hospitable nature of the wearer. They looked as if they were at ease and liked to make him comfortable. His capacious waistcoat was suggestive of a large heart underneath. His rusty coat had a social air, and the baggy pockets plainly proved that little hands often went in empty and came out full. His very boots were benevolent, and his collars never stiff and raspy like other people's. That's it, said Joe to herself, when she at length discovered that genuine good will toward one's fellow men could beautify and dignify even a stout German teacher, who shoveled in his dinner, darned his own socks, and was burdened with the name of Bear. Joe valued goodness highly. But she also possessed a most feminine respect for intellect, and a little discovery which she made about the professor added much to her regard for him. He never spoke of himself, and no one ever knew that in his native city he had been a man much honored and esteemed for learning and integrity, till a countryman came to see him. He never spoke of himself, and in a conversation with Miss Norton divulged the pleasing fact. From her, Joe learned it and liked it all the better because Mr. Bear had never told it. She felt proud to know that he was an honored professor in Berlin, though only a poor language master in America, and his homely, hard-working life was much beautified by the spice of romance which this discovery gave. Another and a better gift than intellect was shown her in a most unexpected manner. Miss Norton had the entree into most society, which Joe would have had no chance of seeing but for her. The solitary woman felt an interest in the ambitious girl and kindly conferred many favors of this sort, both on Joe and the professor. She took them with her one night to a select symposium held in honor of several celebrities. Joe went prepared to bow down and adore the mighty ones whom she had worshipped with youthful enthusiasm afar off. But her reverence for genius received a severe shock that night, and it took her some time to recover from the discovery that the great creatures were only men and women after all. Imagine her dismay on stealing a glance of timid admiration at the poet, whose lines suggested an ethereal being fed on spirit. Fire and dew, to behold him devouring his supper with an ardor which flushed his intellectual countenance. Turning as from a fallen hero, she made other discoveries which rapidly dispelled her romantic illusions. The great novelist vibrated between two decanters with the regularity of a pendulum. The famous divine flirted openly with one of the Madame de Staels of the age. Who looked daggers at another Corinne, who was amiably satirizing her after outmaneuvering her in efforts to absorb the profound philosopher, who imbibed tea, Johnsonianly, and appeared to slumber.
the loquacity of the lady rendering speech impossible. The scientific celebrities, forgetting their mollusks and glacial periods, gossiped about art, while devoting themselves to oysters and ices with characteristic energy. The young musician, who was charming the city like a second Orpheus, talked horses, and the specimen of the British nobility present happened to be the most ordinary men of the party. Before the evening was half over, Jo felt so completely disillusioned that she sat down in a corner to recover herself. Mr. Bear soon joined her, looking rather out of his element, and presently several of the philosophers, each mounted on his hobby, came ambling up to hold an intellectual tournament in the recess. The conversations were miles beyond Joe's comprehension, but she enjoyed it. Though Kant and Hegel were unknown gods, the subjective and the objective unintelligible terms, and the only thing evolved from her inner consciousness was a bad headache after it was all over. It dawned upon her gradually that the world was being picked to pieces and put together on new and, according to the talkers, on infinitely better principles than before. That religion was in a fair way to be reasoned into nothingness, and intellect was to be the only god. Joe knew nothing about philosophy or metaphysics of any sort, but a curious excitement, half pleasurable, half painful, came over her as she listened with a sense of being turned adrift into time and space, like a young balloon on a holiday. She looked round to see how the professor liked it, and found him looking at her with the grimmest expression she had ever seen him wear. He shook his head and beckoned her to come away, but she was fascinated just then by the freedom of speculative philosophy, and kept her seat, trying to find out what the wise gentleman intended to rely upon after they had annihilated all the old beliefs. Now Mr. Bear was a diffident man and slow to offer his own opinions, not because they were unsettled, but too sincere and earnest to be lightly spoken. As he glanced from Joe to several other young people, attracted by the brilliancy of the philosophic pyrotechnics, he knit his brows and longed to speak, fearing that some inflammable young soul would be led astray by the rockets, to find, when the display was over, that they had only an empty stick or a scorched hand. He bore it as long as he could, but when he was appealed to for an opinion, he blazed up with honest indignation and defended religion with all the eloquence of truth, an eloquence which made his broken English musical and his plain face beautiful. He had a hard fight, for the wise men argued well, but he didn't know when he was beaten and stood to his colors like a man. Somehow as he talked, the world got right again to Cho. The old beliefs that had lasted so long seemed better than the new. God was not a blind force, and immortality was not a pretty fable, but a blessed fact. She felt as if she had solid ground under her feet again, and when Mr. Bear paused, out-talked, but not one whit convinced, Joe wanted to clap her hands and thank him. She did neither, but she remembered the scene and gave the professor her heartiest respect, for she knew it cost him an effort to speak out then and there, because his conscience would not let him be silent. She began to see that character is a better position than money, rank, intellect, or beauty, and to feel that if greatness is what a wise man has defined it to be, 
truth, reverence, and goodwill, then her friend, Frederick Bear, was not only good, but great. This belief strengthened daily. She valued his esteem. She coveted his respect. She wanted to be worthy of his friendship. And just when the wish was sincerest, she came near to losing everything. It all grew out of a cocked hat. For one evening, the professor came in to give Joe her lesson with a paper soldier cap on his head, which Tina had put there and he had forgotten to take off. It's evident he doesn't look in his glass before coming down, thought Joe with a smile, as he said, Good evening, and sat soberly down, quite unconscious of the ludicrous contrast between his subject and his headgear, for he was going to read her the death of Wallenstein. She said nothing at first, for she liked to hear him laugh out his big, hearty laugh when anything funny happened, so she left him to discover it for himself and presently forgot all about it, for to hear a German read Schiller is rather an absorbing occupation. After the reading came the lesson, which was a lively one, for Joe was in a gay mood that night, and the cocked hat kept her eyes dancing with merriment. The professor didn't know what to make of her, and stopped at last to ask with an air of mild surprise that was irresistible. Miss Marsh, for what do you laugh in your master's face? Have you no respect for me, that you go on so bad? How can I be respectful, sir, when you forget to take your hat off, said Joe. Lifting his hand to his head, the absent-minded professor gravely felt and removed the little cocked hat, looked at it a minute, and then threw back his head and laughed like a merry bass viol. Ah, I see him now. It is that impetino who makes me a fool with my cap. Well, it is nothing, but see you, if this lesson goes not well, you too shall wear him. But the lesson did not go at all for a few minutes, because Mr. Bear caught sight of a picture on the hat, and unfolding it said with great disgust, I wish these papers did not come in the house. They are not for children to see, nor young people to read. It is not well. I have no patience with those who make this harm. Joe glanced at the sheet and saw a pleasing illustration composed of a lunatic, a corpse, a villain, and a viper. She did not like it, but the impulse that made her turn it over was not one of displeasure but fear, because for a minute she fancied the paper was the volcano. It was not, however, and her panic subsided as she remembered that even if it had been, and one of her own tales in it, there would have been no name to betray her. She had betrayed herself, however, by a look and a blush, for though an absent man, the professor saw a good deal more than people fancied. He knew that Joe wrote, and had met her down among the newspaper offices more than once. But as she never spoke of it, he asked no questions, in spite of a strong desire to see her work. Now it occurred to him that she was doing what she was ashamed to own, and it troubled him. He did not say to himself, It is none of my business. I've no right to say anything, as many people would have done. He only remembered that she was young and poor, a girl far away from mother's love and father's care, and he was moved to help her with an impulse 
as quick and natural as that which would prompt him to put out his hand to save a baby from a puddle. All this flashed through his mind in a minute, but not a trace of it appeared in his face, and by the time the paper was turned and Joe's needle threaded, he was ready to say quite naturally but very gravely, Yes, you are right to put it from you. I do not think that good young girls should see such things. They are made pleasant to some, but I would more rather give my boys gunpowder to play with than this bad trash. All may not be bad, only silly, you know, and if there is a demand for it, I don't see any harm in supplying it. Many very respectable people make an honest living out of what are called sensation stories, said Joe. Scratching gathers so energetically that a row of little slits followed her pin. There is a demand for whiskey, but I think you and I do not care to sell it. If the respectable people know what harm they did, they would not feel that the living was honest. They have no right to put the poison in the sugar plum and let the small ones eat it. No, they should think a little and sweep mud in the street before they do this thing. Mr. Bear spoke warmly and walked to the fire, crumpling the paper in his hands. Joe sat still, looking as if the fire had come to her, for her cheeks burned long after the cocked hat had turned to smoke and gone harmlessly up the chimney. I should like much to send all the rest after him, muttered the professor, coming back with a relieved air. Joe thought what a blaze her pile of papers upstairs would make, and her hard-earned money lay rather heavily on her conscience at that minute. Then she thought consolingly to herself, Mine are not like that. They are only silly, never bad, so I won't be worried. And taking up her book, she said with a studious face, Shall we go on, sir? I'll be very good and proper now. I shall hope so, was all he said. But he meant more than she imagined, and the grave, kind look he gave her made her feel as if the words Weekly Volcano were printed in large type on her forehead. As soon as she went to her room, she got out her papers and carefully reread every one of her stories, being a little short sighted. Mr. Bear sometimes used eyeglasses, and Joe had tried them once, smiling to see how they magnified the fine print of her book. Now she seemed to have on the professor's mental or moral spectacles also, for the faults of these poor stories glared at her dreadfully and filled her with dismay. They are trash, and will soon be worse trash if I go on, for each is more sensational than the last. I've gone blindly on hurting myself and other people for the sake of money. I know it's so, for I can't read this stuff in sober earnest without being horribly ashamed of it. And what should I do if they were seen at home, or Mr. Bear got hold of them? Joe turned hot at the bare idea and stuffed the whole bundle into her stove, nearly setting the chimney afire with the blaze. Yes, that's the best place for such inflammable nonsense. I'd better burn the house down, I suppose, than let other people blow themselves up with my gunpowder, she thought, as she watched the demon of Jura whisk away a little black cinder with fiery eyes. But when nothing remained of all her three months' work except a heap of ashes and the money in her lap, Joe looked sober, 
as she sat on the floor wondering what she ought to do about her wages. I think I haven't done much harm yet, and may keep this to pay for my time, she said, after a long meditation, adding impatiently, I almost wish I hadn't any conscience. It's so inconvenient. If I didn't care about doing right and didn't feel uncomfortable when doing wrong, I should get on capitally. I can't help wishing sometimes that mother and father hadn't been so particular about such things. Ah, Joe, instead of wishing that, thank God that father and mother were particular, and pity from your heart those who have no such guardians to hedge them round with principles which may seem like prison walls to impatient youth, but which will prove sure foundations to build character upon in womanhood. Joe wrote no more sensational stories, deciding that the money did not pay for her share of the sensation. But going to the other extreme, as is the way with people of her stamp, she took a course of Mrs. Sherwood's, Miss Edgeworth, and Hannah Moore, and then produced a tale which might have been more properly called an essay or a sermon, so intensely moral was it. She had her doubts about it from the beginning, for her lively fancy and girlish romance felt as ill at ease in the new style as she would have done masquerading in the stiff and cumbersome costume of the last century. She sent this didactic gem to several markets, but it found no purchaser, and she was inclined to agree with Mr. Dashwood that morals didn't sell. Then she tried a children's story, which she could easily have disposed of if she had not been mercenary enough to demand filthy lucre for it. The only person who offered enough to make it worth her while to try juvenile literature was a worthy gentleman who felt it his mission to convert all the world to his particular belief. But much as she liked to write for children, Joe could not consent to depict all her naughty boys as being eaten by bears or tossed by mad bulls because they did not go to a particular Sabbath school, nor all the good infants who did go as rewarded by every kind of bliss, from gilded gingerbread to escorts of angels when they departed this life with psalms or sermons on their lisping tongues. So nothing came of these trials, and Joe corked up her inkstand and said in a fit of very wholesome humility, I don't know anything. I'll wait until I do before I try again, and meantime sweep mud in the street. If I can't do better, that's honest at least. Which decision proved that her second tumble down the beanstalk had done her some good? While these internal revolutions were going on, her external life had been as busy and uneventful as usual, and if she sometimes looked serious or a little sad, no one observed it but Professor Bear. He did it so quietly that Joe never knew he was watching to see if she would accept and profit by his reproof. But she stood the test, and he was satisfied, for though no words passed between them, he knew that she had given up writing. Not only did he guess it by the fact that the second finger of her right hand was no longer inky, but she spent her evenings downstairs now, was met no more among newspaper offices, and studied with a dogged patience which assured him that she was bent on occupying her mind with something useful, if not pleasant. He helped her in many ways, proving himself a true friend, and Joe was happy. For while her pen lay idle, she was learning other lessons besides German, 
and laying a foundation for the sensation story of her own life. It was a pleasant winter and a long one, for she did not leave Mrs. Kirk till June. Everyone seemed sorry when the time came. The children were inconsolable, and Mr. Bear's hair stuck straight up all over his head, for he always rumpled it wildly when disturbed in mind. "'Going home?' "'Ah, you are happy that you have a home to go in,' he said, when she told him, and sat silently pulling his beard in the corner, while she held a little levee on that last evening. She was going early, so she bade them all good-bye overnight, and when his turn came, she said warmly, "'Now, sir, you won't forget to come and see us if you ever travel our way, will you? I'll never forgive you if you do, for I want them all to know my friend.' "'Do you? Shall I come?' he asked, looking down at her with an eager expression which she did not see. "'Yes, come next month. Laurie graduates then, and you'd enjoy commencement as something new.' "'That is your best friend of whom you speak?' he said in an altered tone. "'Yes, my boy Teddy. I'm very proud of him and should like you to see him.' Joe looked up then, quite unconscious of anything but her own pleasure in the prospect of showing them to one another. Something in Mr. Bear's face suddenly recalled the fact that she might find Laurie more than a best friend, and simply because she particularly wished not to look as if anything was the matter, she involuntarily began to blush, and the more she tried not to, the redder she grew. If it had not been for Tina on her knee, she didn't know what would have become of her. Fortunately, the child was moved to hug her, so she managed to hide her face an instant, hoping the professor did not see it. But he did, and his own changed again from that momentary anxiety to its usual expression, as he said cordially, I fear I shall not make the time for that, but I wish the friend much success and you all happiness. God bless you. And with that he shook hands warmly, shouldered Tina, and went away. But after the boys were abed, he sat long before his fire, with the tired look on his face, and the heimois, or homesickness, lying heavy at his heart. Once, when he remembered Joe as she sat with the little child in her lap, and that new softness in her face, he leaned his head on his hands a minute, and then roamed about the room as if in search of something that he could not find. It is not for me. I must not hope it now, he said to himself, with a sigh that was almost a groan. Then, as if reproaching himself for the longing that he could not repress, he went and kissed the two tousled heads upon the pillow, took down his seldom-used meerschaum, and opened his plato. He did his best and did it manfully, but I don't think he found that a pair of rampant boys, a pipe, or even the divine plato, were very satisfactory substitutes for wife and child at home. Early as it was, he was at the station next morning to see Joe off, and thanks to him she began her solitary journey with the pleasant memory of a familiar face, smiling its farewell, a bunch of violets to keep her company, and best of all, the happy thought, well, the winter's gone and I've written no books, earned no fortune, but I've made a friend worth having, and I'll try to keep him all my life. End of chapter 34 So, 
Did you see what happened with Joe? She's darning his socks. She's, she's, she's becoming Marmy. And it's very interesting to me, too, that Alcott made their relationship as she did, where she has kind of the, the teacher and student uh, relationship going on. Um, kind of the, the, you know, the professor and the undergrad. <laughs> the illicit relationship. There is nothing illicit about this one. But I, I did find it interesting that this is the direction that she went with Joe. And I have always wondered if her going this direction had something to do with her fans and her fan base and uh, pressure from from them. Because certainly I, I think everyone, everyone, you know, uh, tragedies end in death and comedies end in marriage. This is how Shakespeare works and a lot of other things work. So if that's the case, that comedies, happy stories end in marriage, everybody's going to want to see Joe happily married. And if it's not going to be Laurie, then Alcott was going to have to create someone else. And we're seeing the seeds of it planted here. And I I just find it fascinating because if I had had to guess which way she was going to go with Joe, I would not have guessed this at all, ever. It's just like if you were reading the uh, Twilight books with Stephanie Meyer, the fourth book. The fourth book created such a firestorm on the internet of people either violently loving the book or violently hating the book. My only thought reading the book was... Really? That's where you decided to go with this, huh? All right. You know, fine. I guess. In retrospect, I don't know what anybody else was expecting, but at least this wasn't uh, run-of-the-mill. <laughs> anyway, enough. We've gone on long enough. You have a good week. I will talk to you next week. And uh, take care of yourselves. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlet. Please go to Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C R A F T L I T, all one word, blogspot. B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T or at craftlit.libsyn.com Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N and of course you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners and for that I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>